of the more remarkable aspects of the farewell discourse that Jesus would devote his remaining time to ensuring that his disciples are prepared for what lies ahead. What would you be doing if you knew that you had just a few hours left on earth? Would you and I be focused on ministering to others? Or would we be looking for ways to cram in one more experience? Make one more memory? Check one more item off the bucket list? That's not how Jesus spends the remainder of his time. He doesn't serve himself in the few hours that he has left. He serves others. He serves his disciples. Even you and me. And Jesus does this knowing full well that his end is not going to come peaceably. He does this knowing that just around the corner is the shame and agony of the cross. And still, even with the cross in view, Jesus is more concerned for his disciples than he is for himself. So when we say that the point of this passage is preparation, that's the same thing as saying the point of this passage is Christ's mercy. His humility, his tenderness, his care, not for himself, but for us. As we go about our study this morning, friends, please don't get lost in all of the doctrine and fail to see the good shepherd out ahead of you preparing the way for you to walk by faith in following him. I hope that's one thing you take away this morning, that the Lord Jesus has made every preparation for you to trust Him and for you to trust Him until the end. In terms of specifics, there are four points of preparation that stand out at the end of John 14. Four particular provisions connected to Jesus that He gives to us so that we will live faithfully until He comes back. Four points of preparation. Let me give them to you in advance so that you'll know where we're going. The first focuses on confidence. The second provides peace. The third encourages joy. And the fourth, fittingly, addresses faith. So confidence, peace, joy, faith. That's how Jesus prepares us to trust Him in John 14. Let's begin in verses 25 and 26 with the first point of preparation. Believers have confidence in the word of Christ. Confidence in the word of Christ. Jesus again alludes to his departure in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, Jesus says. The time is short, in other words. And that prompts the question, if the time is short... How will the disciples continue in Jesus' teaching? Remember, friends, for all of the notoriety of Jesus' miracles, it is His Word that has been at the center of His ministry. His miracles, in many ways, are just confirming His teaching. So if Jesus' teaching has been central in His ministry, how will that centrality continue if Jesus leaves? How are they going to continue to walk in His Word? Notice Jesus' answer, verse 26 which focuses on the Spirit. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we need to be clear at this point that verse 26 is a specific promise 
to the first generation of Jesus' disciples and to the apostles in particular. As the apostles began the process of recording Jesus' teaching in Scripture, it was the Holy Spirit who enabled them to accurately record Jesus' word. Think of this particular book, the Gospel of John. This Gospel was written towards the end of the first century A.D., so somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 years after the events of Jesus' life. How could John write an accurate testimony after so much time? I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. How does John remember things that Jesus said 40 years ago? Because, verse 26, the Spirit inspired his remembering and therefore his writing. Friends, the same is true for Matthew, for Paul, for Peter, for James, for all of the New Testament authors. Why are their words written in Scripture true and faithful and accurate? Because the Holy Spirit inspired their writing and their remembering. Verse 26 also explains how the New Testament authors came to a fuller understanding of Jesus' person and work. We've seen all through John's Gospel that the first disciples, including John, didn't always understand things very clearly, did they? Just think about the examples in this chapter. Thomas, verse 5. He doesn't know where Jesus is going, even though Jesus just said, I'm going to the Father. Thomas doesn't know. Or Philip, verse 8. He thinks the disciples need greater revelation. Show us the Father, Philip says. Jesus tells him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how could disciples like Peter and Thomas and Philip, who seem to understand so little about what Jesus is doing, how could men like that ever teach and pass on the truth? The answer is verse 26. Because the Spirit would deepen their understanding over time. That's what Jesus means when He says that the Spirit will teach you all things. Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is going to bring these new waves of of revelation. Rather, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will help the the apostles understand the revelation they've already been given. They'll understand who He is and what He came to do. So, verse 26 is not a direct promise to you and to me. Jesus is speaking to the first generation of his disciples in verse 26. But don't conclude from that that verse 26 has nothing to do with you and me. Far from it. This is the reason why we have confidence in Scripture because ultimately the Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, human authors, like the apostles, wrote these letters. And we should never minimize the human authorship of Scripture. But that human authorship is only part of the story. Within those human authors, the Spirit Himself worked. And He inspired their faithful testimony. This is the ultimate reason for you to believe God's Word. In fact... If you have doubts about the Bible, if you have doubts about Scripture, this is where I would point you. There are many reasons to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the most historically confirmed book in the history of the world. There are many reasons to believe the Bible. Fulfilled prophecy, historical and archaeological confirmation, manuscript evidence. There are all of these reasons. I could give you a whole lecture on why intellectually, you should believe the Bible. 
But the most fundamental reason is verse 26. The Spirit's inspiration of Scripture. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. As Jesus just said in verse 17. He's the Spirit of truth. And since He is the Spirit of truth, the word that He inspires is also true. So, if you were to ask me, why should I believe the Bible? This is what I would tell you, friends. You should believe because of the character of God. Since God is true and cannot lie, then His Word is also true and free from error. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth inspires the true Word of God. That's why you should believe. Ultimately, that's why you should trust the Bible. Because God Himself is trustworthy and true. And friends, again, if you have doubts about the the truthfulness of the Bible, you should believe because of the Holy Spirit's work. And then here's here's what you should do. You should take God at His Word and read it and see what happens. Read it. And ask Him to confirm to you the truthfulness of His Word. Read it. Before you dismiss it, read it. So that's the first way Jesus prepares his disciples. He gives them confidence in his word. The second point of preparation is in verse 27. Believers have peace from the work of Christ. Peace from the work of Christ. It's at this point that Jesus' heart for his disciples begins to shine most clearly. His departure is soon. He knows that his disciples are troubled. So he promises them peace. Listen again, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's an incredible promise. Just on the face of it, there is comfort for disciples. Many Christians have been comforted simply by reading verse 27, right? I know I have. That's why I put it on the front of the bulletin today. Verse 27 is an incredible promise. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, Jesus says. But let's, let's, press, let's press verse 27 a bit further. What exactly does Jesus mean by peace? He certainly must mean something more than the absence of conflict. He must mean Something more than that. How do, we, how do we know that? Well, because 10 of the 11 remaining disciples lost their lives as martyrs. So if the peace of verse 27 is the absence of conflict, then it's a pretty weak promise. Because the uh, 10 of the 11 apostles died. That certainly doesn't sound very peaceful to me. So the peace in verse 27 has to go beyond the absence of turmoil. It has to go beyond the absence of conflict. What is it? Well, the key, I'll argue, is that phrase, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Jesus' peace is not like the world's peace. The world maintains peace through the power of the sword, we might say. Often, either by the use of force or by the threat of force, peace is maintained in the world. And listen, this is not a bad thing. There is wisdom in governments fulfilling their God-given responsibility to maintain peace through the sword. That's a God-given use of authority that we should thank Him for. But that kind of peace is fragile, isn't it? 
It depends on circumstances. It depends on government leaders having the right amount of wisdom, which is sadly often lacking. So, I mean, think of, just in history, think about how quickly peace has evaporated into horrible conflict. Still to this day, we're not really sure how the First World War started. Think about how quickly a peaceful world becomes a world in turmoil. I mean, think also about how often governments have abused the power of the sword. There are, there are examples too many to mention, aren't there? So, if Jesus' peace is like the world's peace, then there is little comfort in verse 27. This is especially the case since Jesus is departing. If Jesus' peace is like the world's peace, then how is he going to maintain it if he's not here? Thankfully, the peace of verse 27 is of an entirely different nature than the world's peace. The peace of verse 27 is the peace that Jesus himself accomplishes in his own body. Notice that he says, my peace I give to you. You see that? Jesus is looking ahead to the cross where the Son of God established peace between God and his people. This is peace in the most important sense. Remember friends, sin puts us at enmity with God. All sin is ultimately against God and therefore every human being comes into this world under the wrath of God. There is no peace between a holy God and an unrepentant sinner. There's only wrath and judgment. But the wonder of the gospel is that Christ took God's wrath upon himself at the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body so that he might bring us to God. And now that God's wrath has been satisfied at the cross, what exists between the repentant believer and God? Peace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's the peace of verse 27. It's not like the world's peace that's fleeting and based on circumstances and and based on the right amount of force and wisdom combining to keep things at bay. We have the peace of Christ that's secure and based on His perfect sacrifice and perfectly applied through His Holy Spirit and doesn't wax or wane but is always firm. That's why Jesus can say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's not being glib. He's not some Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky person saying, it's not going to be that bad. This is the real and right application of Jesus' work at the cross. Because we have peace with God, there's no reason to fear the trouble of this world. Because we have peace with God, there's no reason to fear the trouble of this world. The world may do its worst to us, and indeed it will. And still, our peace from Christ will endure. It's, the Bible's vision of peace here is so much more than, than favorable circumstances. It's so much more than a good frame of mind. This is peace that answers every trouble. Now, I'm going to test your listening skills. Notice I said it's peace that answers every trouble. I did not say it's peace that removes every trouble. That's huge. Verse 27 does not mean that Jesus will keep you from every troubling hardship in the world. In this world, we will have tribulation. It's a fact. 
The promise of verse 27 is that the peace of Christ will endure every trouble. Not remove it, but endure through it. No matter what strikes me, nothing can change the outcome of the cross. Nothing can change the reality that I now live at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And friends, that changes how I live day by day. Trouble will come. I hate to burst your bubble, but it'll probably come tomorrow. Trouble will come. But verse 27 equips me with a different mindset. It's a mindset of peace that's rooted in the gospel. So instead of making decisions and living with a sense of fear, I make decisions in light of the work of Christ, in light of the gospel, knowing that the most important thing about me is secure. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And therefore, I'm not afraid. Friends, that's the application of verse 27. Jesus does not promise you a life free from trouble. He promises you something better. A peace with God that will endure any trouble. Even the peace of being made right with God. And you would say, but pastor, that sounds like I'm going to have to every day continually reapply the gospel to my life in order to have peace. Yes, you got it. That's true. Do that every day. That's called walking by faith. That's what Christians do. You receive the peace of Christ by faith each day by seeing your life in the world through the gospel. That's the second way Jesus prepares his disciples. He promises them peace from his work. Third point of preparation, this time from verse 28. Believers have joy in the exaltation of Christ. Joy in the exaltation of Christ. Verse 28 is one part reminder and one part correction. The reminder is evident right at the outset. Look at the first part, verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. This is the entire reason of the, uh, for the farewell discourse. Jesus is going to leave, but then he's going to return. He's going to return one day to gather his people. So verse 28 is one part reminder. But the second part is correction. How should the disciples view his departure? Not with excessive sorrow, but with joy. Look again, verse 28. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. There are two parts to Jesus' statement that require some careful thinking. First of all, when Jesus says, if you loved me, he is not saying that the disciples entirely lack love for them, for him. He, he's not rebuking them as being completely opposed to him. Rather, Jesus' point is to highlight their misguided perspective on his departure. At this point, what are the disciples most focused on? Their own situation. That's what they're thinking about. That's why Thomas is like, where are you going? And Philip's saying, show us the Father. Because they're focused most on themselves. What will they do when Jesus leaves? Do they know the way to where Jesus is going? Their focus is on their own well-being. So when Jesus says, if you loved me, he means if the disciples understood Jesus' departure from his perspective. If their hearts were tuned first to Jesus, then they would respond in the right way. And that right response would be joy. 
It would be joy. So do you see why I say verse 28 is a mild correction? If the disciples loved Jesus, that is, if they had his interests uppermost in their minds, then they would rejoice at his departure because he's going to the Father. And that's the second piece of Jesus' statement that needs some careful thinking. Jesus' relationship to the Father. Notice in verse 28 where Jesus says that the Father is greater than I. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Father is greater than the Son? Well, let's rule out the things that it can't mean. It cannot mean that the Son is somehow less than the Father. This is how some false teachers in the history of the church have understood this verse as Jesus' way of saying that he's not actually God. But friends, that interpretation goes against not only the clear teaching of John's gospel, but the, the clear teaching of the entire New Testament. I mean, just in this chapter alone, Jesus has claimed that he is the way to the Father, something that only God can claim. Jesus has said that God... The Father dwells in him and he in the Father, which speaks to the fullness of deity that Jesus possesses. So, verse 28 cannot mean that the Son is inferior to the Father in nature. Jesus is not saying that he is less than God. Rather, Jesus' point has to do with the Father's role and his realm. Those two words are the key. What does it mean that the Father is greater than the Son? It has to do with the Father's role and his realm. In the work of salvation, who is it that sins and who is it that is sent? The Father sins and the Son is sent. That's the Father's greater role, to send the Son. Along with that, the realm to which the Son comes is the earth. Where does the Father stay? In glory, in heaven. His realm, glory, is greater than the realm to which the Son comes comes. So the Father is greater in His role. He sends and the Son is sent. And the Father is greater in His realm. He remains in glory while the Son comes to to earth. That's what it means when Jesus says the Father is greater than I. He's talking about God's role in the economy of salvation and God's realm as His dwelling. And if the disciples understood this, if they understood the glory of God in salvation and the glory of God in his own presence, if the disciples understood that, they would rejoice that Jesus is leaving. They would rejoice. If the disciples had their minds fixed on things above, not on earthly things, then they would see that death is gain for Jesus. They would see that the cross is the re-entry into glory. And they would rejoice. In fact, they would find that Jesus' joy would become their joy. This is again why I say that verse 28 is one part reminder, one part correction. Jesus is teaching them how they should respond. Is there any application from this verse for us? As before, we should say that verse 28 applies most directly to Jesus' original disciples, to, to the 11 men standing there. So, is there any application to us? What would be the application to disciples who live 2,000 years later? Well, I think that we ought to meditate here for just a second on the perspective on joy that Jesus is laying out in this verse. So, moment of transparency from me to you. 
I find joy to be the most difficult fruit of the Spirit to cultivate. That probably says more about me than it does about joy. But perhaps you can relate. Joy, at times, is ephemeral. I mean, it's almost mythical. Joy? Is it even possible to have joy in such a fallen world? I mean, have you watched the news? Is it even possible to have joy? Yes, Jesus says. Yes, provided our joy is rooted in Him physically, almost, almost this literal sense of being rooted in Him. Yes, you can have joy, provided your joy is rooted in Him and not in circumstances. Listen, verse 28 is a remarkable example of theology applied. Let me explain what I mean. The, the theological point in verse 28 is our union with Christ. By faith, we are united to Christ so that what is true of Christ is true of us in Him. So that's true of our righteousness. We are righteous in Christ. That's true of our sonship. We are sons of God in Christ. But friends, that's also true of our joy. The pathway to enduring joy is in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He has been exalted to glory with the Father. And since you and I are united to Him in a union of faith, His exaltation is in a real sense our exaltation. Where He is, there we will also be. And therefore His joy upon entering the glory of the Father is our joy. His joy in in exaltation is my joy because I am bound up with Him. So if you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, tomorrow morning when you wake up, the most determinative truth of your life is that Jesus Christ reigns from God's right hand in heaven. That's the most foundational thing about you, that Jesus Christ reigns from the right hand of God in heaven. That's where he is, exalted in the joy of his finished work. And amazingly, his joy in his exaltation is your joy by faith. It's not the joy of good circumstances, which can be gone in an instant. It's not the joy of a good mental frame of mind which can evaporate with one text message, one email, one phone call, one doctor's visit. It's the joy of enduring exaltation and life in the Son of God. Friends, I find that to be incredibly practical and helpful. As a person who is not inclined to be joyful, I find this eminently helpful. Even if my circumstances in this fallen world are difficult until the day I draw my last breath, my joy in Christ is secure. I can even embrace that joy now by setting my mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And as I do that, I find that this joy is a gift greater than any material blessing. It's more enduring than any positive frame of mind. To embrace that joy by faith. And you're thinking, Pastor, it sounds like you're telling me i got to embrace that joy every single day by faith and keep doing it until I see Jesus. Yes, you're getting it. You do that every day. That's called walking by faith. That's what Christians do. 
It's the third way Jesus prepares us. He points us to our joy in his exaltation. Fourth and final point of preparation in this passage from verses 29 to 31. Believers have faith in the faithfulness of Christ. Faith in the faithfulness of Christ. In verse 29, Jesus gives the disciples the purpose of his farewell. Look again, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus understands that his betrayal and his arrest and crucifixion will be terribly frightening for his disciples. And he doesn't want them to be afraid. He doesn't want them to fall away. He wants them to believe. That's the purpose of the farewell discourse, to call the disciples to believe. Okay, that raises a question. Believe what? Believe what? Faith is only as good as its object. So what is it that the disciples ought to believe? What is the object of their faith? The answer, friends, is Jesus' faithfulness to save. That's That's what they're to believe. Jesus' faithfulness to save them. When Judas's wicked plot comes to fruition, when Satan does his best, when darkness falls upon Jesus at the cross, at those moments, the disciples ought to believe in Jesus' faithfulness to save them. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it that that's what you ought to believe. I want you to see it in the text. So, so follow Jesus' reasoning with me for just a moment. Notice in verse 30 that Jesus acknowledges the impending darkness. He acknowledges how bad it's going to be. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. That's a reference to Satan. The world lies in darkness, and the operating power behind darkness is Satan. He is coming, Jesus says, which means the cross rapidly approaches. Jesus is under no illusions about his immediate future. What is going to come in just a moment, a matter of hours? What's coming? Darkness, Jesus says. The ruler of this world is coming. But, but, the ruler of this age cannot stop the Son of God. Notice how Jesus finishes the thought. Verse 30 into verse 31. The ruler of this world is coming, Jesus says. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Friends, that's a remarkable statement from Jesus. Satan has no claim on him. But but what about the cross, we ask? What about the cross? You're going to die. What about the shameful agony of crucifixion? That sure looks like Satan has a claim on you, Jesus. You're going to lose your life. What about the cross? Wrong, Jesus says. I do as the Father commanded me. Do you see it? Verse 31. I do as the Father commanded, not as Satan commanded. The cross, in other words, is not Satan's moment of victory. The cross is the place of the Son's faithfulness to the Father. Why does Jesus die on the cross? Because the Father willed for him to die. That's why he dies. It's not Satan commanding Calvary. It's God. And the Son is faithful to carry out God's will. Brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus can tell us to place our faith in His faithfulness to save us. 
when we see the cross with all of its shame and all of its agony, we must not conclude that the ruler of this world has come, has won. Like the disciples, we must believe that Jesus' faithfulness is more powerful than sin and death and Satan and hell. So the object of the disciples' faith is the faithfulness of the Son of God. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me, for I do as the Father commanded. Do you see? Jesus is rooting your faith in his faithfulness. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is Jesus' word to you. The Bible is very clear that every person who comes into this world is a sinner. That includes you just like it includes everyone else in this room. Everyone who comes into this world is a sinner, and because of our sin, we cannot save ourselves. The only way to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place, rose again for your salvation, and is returning again one day to bring you into eternal life with him. That's the gospel message, friends, and if you're not a Christian this morning, then this is what Jesus calls you to believe. Believe that he's faithful to save. Believe that your sins have been paid for in his death. Believe that his resurrection is your salvation. Please do not leave today. If you're not a Christian, please do not leave today without stopping right now, right now, taking God at his word and considering eternity. You're going to live forever. It's just a question of do you live forever reconciled to God or under the wrath of God? Don't leave today without thinking for a moment on what God has revealed here in his word. Right here in the Bible. Don't take my word for it. I'm just a man. Don't take my word for it. Right here in the Bible, Jesus is calling you to trust him. And in trusting him, he says you'll be saved. For those of us who are Christians, there's also an important application from verse 31. This may be This may be the most important application of the sermon, so I want you to hear me. Many Christians, many Christians, legitimate, God-fearing, genuine, Bible-believing Christians, many Christians fear that their faith will not be strong enough to carry them to the end. Do you ever fear that? Perhaps you do today. You look at the weakness of your faith and you think to yourself, there's no way, there's no way that weak faith is getting me to the end. If that's you, if that's you this morning, then I want to encourage you with what Jesus says in verse 31. I want to apply verse 31 to your heart and to your conscience. The object of your faith is not your own act of believing. I'm going to say it again. The object of your faith is not your own act of believing. You are not saved by your own ability to believe. You're saved by Jesus' faithfulness. By Jesus' commitment to keep everyone who trusts him. Brothers and sisters, that's really the heart of assurance of salvation. You don't find assurance by looking inward at the strength of your own believing. The Bible does not call you to trust in your own ability to trust. That's a weak anchor for assurance. Even on the best of days. Assurance flows from who Christ is and what he has accomplished. Assurance comes from Christ's faithfulness, not your own. And in this passage, Jesus is telling you that his faithfulness cannot be broken. 
Even when the darkest night comes, even when the ruler of this age comes, even in that dark night, the Son is faithful to His Father. I do as the Father commanded me, Jesus says. He is faithful to the end to save. He goes to the cross because nothing will keep Him from doing what the Father has purposed for Him to do, and that means saving you. If you belong to Him. Friends, don't trust in your own ability to save. Far too many Christians, far too many Christians have faith in their own ability to have faith. That's not what the Bible calls you to do. Don't be the own anchor. Don't be your own anchor of assurance. Trust in Christ's faithfulness and in His faithfulness you will find the assurance for your soul. And you think, well, Pastor, it sounds like you're telling me every day I'm going to have to go back to the finished work of Christ and appropriate that by faith to find my assurance. Yes, you're getting it. Yes, do that every day. That's called walking by faith. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. On the cusp of the dark night of his own soul, Jesus' concern is for his people, not for himself. It's incredible. He prepares them so that when trouble strikes, they will not be shaken. We can even say it more uh, personally. He prepares us so that when trouble strikes, we will not be shaken. We have confidence in the word of Christ. We have peace from the work of Christ. We find joy in the exaltation of Christ. And praise God, we trust in the faithfulness of Christ. So on this second Advent Sunday, let's leave today encouraged that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, has made every preparation for you to trust Him and trust Him to the end. Amen? Let's pray.